0: At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. In order to support our show, we need the help of some great advertisers. and We want to make sure those advertisers are ones you'll actually want to hear about. But we need to learn a little more about you to make that possible. So go to podsurvey.com slash artofman and take a quick anonymous survey that will help us get to know you better. That way we can bring on advertisers you won't want to skip. Once you've completed the quick survey, you can enter for a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Terms and conditions apply. Again, that's podsurvey.com slash artofman, A-R-T-O-F-M-A-N, podsurvey.com slash artofman. Thanks for your help. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Everyone has some bad habits, and they nearly always involve doing something too much. Eating too much, drinking too much, buying too much, looking at your phone too much. Why do we have such a propensity for overdoing it? My guest says it's all thanks to a scarcity loop that we're hardwired to follow. Once you understand how this loop works, you can start taking action to resist the compulsive cravings that sabotage your life. Michael Easter is the author of Scarcity Brain. Fix your craving mindset and rewire your habits to thrive with enough. Today on the show, Michael unpacks the three parts of the scarcity loop and how they've been amplified in the modern day. We talk about the slot machine lab that corporations use to hack your brain, why your main problem may be that you're understimulated rather than overstimulated, why addiction may be better thought of as a symptom rather than a disease, how the quantification and gamification of life can negatively impact your experience of it, and how ultimately the fix for resisting your bad habits is having something better to do than chase the cheap, unsatisfying hits of pleasure our culture so readily offers. After the show's over, check out our show notes at awm.is/scarcitybreak. slash scarcitybrain. All right, Michael Easter, welcome back to the show. Hey, thanks for having me back. I appreciate it. So we had you on last time to talk about your book, The Comfort Crisis. That's episode number 708 for those who haven't listened to it. I highly recommend you go check it out. You got a new book out called Scarcity Brain. Fix your craving mindset and rewrite your habits to thrive with enough. Now, I read a lot of books for what I do, my business. It's one of the best books I've read this year, and I'm looking forward to digging into it. So start off with this idea of scarcity brain. What is the scarcity brain?
1: Well, first of all, thank you for having me back. And thank you for the kind words about the book. I'm glad you enjoyed it. To answer your question, everyone knows that everything is fine in moderation, right? But the question is, why are we so bad at moderating? It's like, why can't people seem to get enough of everything from food to stuff to time on social media, all these different behaviors that we do to excess and want to stop, but can't seem to. So scarcity of brain is really that, that feeling we don't have enough and this tendency we have to sort of overdo things in our life. And I think the, where that comes from, it sort of tracks back to evolution. Because for all of time, trying to overaccumulate, overdo things, you know, getting more food, more stuff, more status over people, that gave you a leg up survival-wise. But in today's world we now have an abundance of all those things and i think that you start to see it backfire
0: in a lot of ways gotcha so i mean what are some areas where you see the scarcity of your brain contribute to problems in modern life
1: sure well i think food is a is a really <laughs> easy to see one we throw out about a third of the food that we produce in america you know 75 percent of the country is either either overweight or obese And we're not alone. I think more than half of countries now have an obesity rate of at least 20%. So for all of time, food was scarce. And now, I mean, it's literally on every corner and hyper-processed and delicious possessions. So the average American used to own something like a few outfits and, you know, some basic tools and furniture that was passed down generation to generation. Now the average home has 10,000 items and, you know, that is linked to debt to general life stress just being around all the clutter that we're in seems to be linked to life stress. And not to mention, it's a lot of wasted resources, and even information. So the average person today, and this was a crazy stat that I came upon in researching this book, the average person today takes in more information in one day than a person 700 years ago would have taken in in their entire life, which is wild to me. And I think that in this sea of information we live in, it's not always improving our understanding of the world, right? I mean, you can Google any any silly question that pops into your brain. There's obviously a big problem with misinformation online. And also how we get information has really changed. We used to have to go there in person in the present moment, maybe often talk to another human to know something. And now this world of information that may be good or bad is at our fingertips instantly. Also, influence and status. So that's a big thing that we evolved to crave as humans. And in the past, we could only influence so many people. You know, we seem to have evolved in these bands of people that were maybe 150 people most. But now we have this rise of hyperconnected societies and social media where you can literally put a post on the internet that influences millions of people and promote your status. And it all just goes out instantly. And then that status can then get quantified, right? It gets quantified and sort of gamified in likes and retweets and follows and all that sort of stuff. And even just uh, sheer stimulation. You know, the average person today is taking in 11 to 13 hours of digital media every single day. That's all new in the last 100 years. Like we've never been this hyper stimulated by media ever. And I think you see that leading to a lot of issues with mental health and burnout and yeah i mean this is just one of those things that's basically an evolutionary mis- mismatch where humans are in these environments where everything we needed to survive was scarce and now it's abundant yet we still have these old brains going you need more of that status yeah get that information oh you got to figure that out food yeah have another bite right
0: Right. So yes, uh, the scarcity brain is making us fat, going into debt, buying stuff, just getting sucked into social media feeds and all that stuff. Those are some things that the scarcity brain that anyone can experience. But you also talk about the extreme form of scarcity brain is addiction, addiction to alcohol and drugs. Uh, And you talk about this in your book and then in your previous book that you experience the pitfalls of the scarcity brain when it comes to addiction.
1: Yeah, totally. So I am a person who uh, has been sober for about a decade now. And I can absolutely tell you, when you look at addiction, it very much is this constant craving, this wanting more of this substance that is going to improve your life in the short term, but lead to long term problems. And I think that that same story holds for a lot of the bad habits that people have. So I've, you know, I've been writing about health and wellness and psychology for most of my career. And I'm, uh, I started in the magazine world, and now I'm a professor at a university. And I've always been most interested in bad habits. It's like everyone wants to, you know, give gas to good new habits. But if you still have your worst habits, you still have your foot on the brake. It's the things that we do (laughs) that really drag us down that keep us from going anywhere. Like for me, I could do all the exercise and eating right and all these great things I needed to. But until I stopped drinking and got sober, I wasn't really going anywhere, right? It was having to fix that really bad habit of repeat consumption of this thing that was bringing me down that allowed me to really improve my life. And I think that everyone has, to a certain extent, probably something in their life, a handful of bad habits that are really holding them back. And so part of what I want to do with this book is help people identify those, understand why you fall into those bad habits in the first place, and then start to think about, okay, well, Why do I have those? And then how do I get out of that?
0: So something you write about in the book and you take this thread all throughout the book is that one of the things that or the thing that is driving our scarcity brain is what you call the scarcity loop. So what is the scarcity loop and what did you learn about the scarcity loop by visiting a casino research and development facility in Las Vegas?
1: Yeah. So I told you I'm interested in bad habits and I live in Las Vegas, which just happens to be the best town a person who's interested in bad habits could ever live in, right? This town is built on, it's built on excess and people coming into town to just go crazy for a while and then uh, leave. So you see a lot of strange things when you live here, but the strangest thing about this town to me has always been the slot machines because these things are everywhere. They're obviously all over the casinos, but they're in our gas stations, they're in our grocery stores, they're in airports, they're in restaurants, they're in bars, you name it. And these things are not sitting empty. People are will play slot machines around the clock. Like I'll be getting groceries at 7 a.m. on a Tuesday, and someone will be letting their frozen food spoil because they got sucked into this slot machine, right? And this is insane to me because everyone knows the house always wins. Yet people play and play and play. And I would later find out that we spend more on slot machines than we do on music, movies, and books combined. And it's like, well, why the heck is that?
0: (laughs) Yeah, and and another interesting point you made in the book when you're talking to these guys in the, the gambling industry, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, slot machines weren't the main event at casinos. Most of the revenue came from the table games.
1: It was all table game revenue. And then what ended up happening is that this guy whose name is Cyred Red comes along and he's like this old school. I mean, just picture like your stereotypical old school Vegas guy in like a maroon polyester suit, big cowboy hat, you know, the bolo tie, just a really fascinating cat. And he is effectively able to apply this idea called the scarcity that I call the scarcity loop to slot machines. And The way that I learned about this, it wasn't necessarily from him. It's that I traveled to the slot machine lab that you kind of mentioned before. And this came from, you know, noticing that people play slot machines around the clock. And it's like, okay, why are people doing that? I'm an investigative journalist. Let's figure it out. And this takes me to this lab. And this lab is this casino that's on the edge of town. Like This is a fully working casino, newest, most cutting edge place in town. But it's used entirely for research on human behavior. So the public isn't welcome. And the gambling industry has collaborated with a bunch of big businesses in 73 different There's seventy-three different companies on board. And they're all trying to figure out, okay, how do we get people to gamble more? And it all tracks back to getting people into this scarcity loop. Now, this is like the ultimate... Serial killer of moderation. It's this behavior loop that pushes people into repeat behaviors, and it has three parts. It's got opportunity, unpredictable rewards, and quick repeatability. So, with opportunity, it's you have an opportunity to get something of value. In the case of a slot machine, it's money. Then you have unpredictable rewards. You know you're going to get that thing of value, but you don't know when and you don't know how valuable it's going to be. So, when you pull a slot machine handle, You could lose, you could win a few quarters, or you could win a life-changing amount of money, right? That's this crazy range of outcomes. And then quick repeatability. You can immediately replay. You can repeat the behavior. You can repeat the game. So the average slot machine player plays something like 16 games in a minute, which is more than we blink. And there really is nothing better than this random reward loop, the scarcity loop at pushing people into these repeat behaviors that can be fun in the short term, but ultimately hurt them in the long run.
0: Okay, so let's dig into this unpredictable rewards. What is it about unpredictable rewards in this scarcity loop that drives, that's a, it's a bigger reinforcer of behavior than predictable rewards? Because that, that seems counterintuitive, right? Because like if you know you're going to get something all the time, then you'd be like, well, I'm going to do it because I know I'm going to get it. But we see unpredictable rewards influence not only humans, but also animals. So what's going on there?
1: Yeah. And to your point about it being counterintuitive, that's what behavioral psychologists thought. So sort of one of the fathers of behavioral psychology is B.F. Skinner in the fifties, he's teaching rats to basically hit a lever for a treat. And what ends up happening is this guy runs out of treats. He's running low on them. So instead of making new treats, he goes, I'm just going to give them treats randomly when they hit the lever. And he figures okay, now that they're not getting as many treats and they don't know when, they're just going to stop hitting the lever. The opposite happened. They got super obsessed with hitting that lever. They just sit there and hit it, re-hit it, re-hit it, trying to figure out when they were going to win that treat. So I end up talking to a guy whose name is Thomas Zintal, and he's like 80-something years old. He started researching uh, behavioral psychology in the 60s, and he's done similar experiments. Well, he will take pigeons and he will give them two different games. So in the first game, the pigeons hit a lever and every other time they hit the lever, they get say 15 pellets of food. In game two, they hit the lever and they get food every fifth peck, but it's random. So it could be like peck food, peck, 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 right? So it's a total random rewards game, just like a slot machine. And what ends up happening is when you offer pigeons, these two games, the pigeons all choose the gambling game. Like 97% of pigeons choose the gambling game, even though that game ends up getting them far less food like half as much food. And you see this in all different animal species. Now, the reason for this likely tracks back to how we used to have to find food, how all animals find food. So if you think of us as hunter-gatherers and it's a million years ago and we need food or else we're going to starve. But the thing is, is we don't know where the food is, right? So we're going to go to point A to look for it. Oh, it's not there. Okay, we'll go to point B. We'll go to point B to look for it. It's not there. Now we're going to go to point C, not there. Oh man, we're going to go to point D, jackpot, ton of food. So this is effectively a random rewards game that kept us alive in the past. So this Thomas Zenthal's theory is that we effectively evolved to fall into this game. Our brain has this sort of natural attraction because if it didn't, we would have been not quite as good at persisting in these long, crazy, hard hunts and sessions of gathering that kept us alive.
0: Okay. So the scarcity loop, you have opportunity, unpredictable rewards, quick repeatability. And this explains why slot machines are so addictive, but then you see this scarcity loop pop up in other parts of our life. It's why social media or the internet just going online taps into a scarcity loop. Cause like okay, you have the opportunity it's in your pocket, in your phone, the unpredictable rewards. You don't know what you're going to find. Maybe you're going to find something really cool or funny Maybe not, or maybe you post something that's going to get a lot of likes, maybe not. So it's that unpredictable reward is driving you to constantly check your phone. And then it's quickly repeatable. You can just do it anytime you want. So the scarcity loop explains why our wanting to check our phone is such a, a problem. But then you also see this with food. If you have the opportunity of like snacks in your, your house, you eat one, it may be good. It may not be kind of great. And then you can quickly repeat that. So this is, you see it everywhere in modern life.
1: Yeah, you really do. I mean, so when I, I mean, you have to track back and ask, okay, there's this casino lab and there's gambling companies are invested, but the majority of the companies that are invested in this thing or not have nothing to do with gambling. They're like these big tech companies and you go, okay, well, why do they care? It's because this loop, which is fundamental in slot machines, I think we really figured it out with slot machines in the eighties. Other industries take notice and they go, what's happening over there? And so now you start to see it pop up in all these different technologies. I mean, to your point, you named a few, but social media, it's like, you know, you have an opportunity to get some status, you post, you don't know if you're going to get one like, and uh, that sucks. Or if you're going to get a million likes, you're going to go viral. And oh my gosh, that, you know, that made my day. So it's this random rewards game. You also see it in online shopping with things like lightning deals, or even just scanning the internet. Like I need to find this purchase. I need to find this purchase. Oh, this is the one this is the one, right? And now you even see it in advertisements online where you can uh, say, spin a wheel, like a roulette wheel for a discount. And those tend to increase uh, conversion rates by seven fold, which is, which is a crazy number. It's in dating apps, right? It's like swipe, swipe, swipe. Oh my gosh, I matched. But who is it? Is it that person that I was like on the fence about? Or is that person that I was like, Oh my God, that's the most amazing looking person I've ever seen in my life, right? It's, it's random sports betting. It's obviously in sports betting. And I think too, that you have to realize that the scarcity loop is, you know, inherently part of nature. It's part of life, but really the important part about it that makes the difference of why it's so popular today is the quick repeatability element. So the quicker you can repeat a behavior, especially if it has random rewards, the more likely you are to repeat it again and again and again. So when you think of sports betting, this is why sports betting goes, okay, we can get people to bet. But the thing is, is that games are kind of long. So how can we fix that? Oh, what if people could bet on like a free throw? What if they could bet on whether the team will score a touchdown? So you start to see the rise of in-game betting as well. And then it's, you know, it's in personal stock trading apps like Robinhood, their real secret to success was increasing the quick repeatability. And they did that by taking down trading fees, because that slows you down. You're going to have a moment of pause if you have to pay a fee to make a trade, right? So by taking that down, people started to increase the frequency of their trades. It's in the gig economy too. Companies like Uber are using it to nudge workers into driving different areas and driving longer than they would want. And yeah, to your point, it is in the food industry. One of the more fascinating quotes that I came across was from an executive at a big junk food company. He basically said, The way that you make a snack food successful is that it has to have three Vs. It has to have value. It has to have variety. And it has to have velocity. That is just different language to explain the scarcity loop, right? It's got to give you something of value. You've got to have a lot of different flavors because then it becomes much more exciting. And you have to be able to eat it quickly. And when you see how people eat, if a food is ultra processed like junk food is, they will eat far more of it faster than if the food was less processed.
0: So, some interesting research you highlight is the role of understimulation in our environment and its contribution to the scarcity loop. What does that research say about understimulation?
1: Yeah, so this was one of those counterintuitive things as well that goes back to animals. I mentioned that uh, researcher Thomas Zental earlier and So he turns these pigeons into degenerate gamblers in like two minutes, right? He takes them out of their little cages and he gives them the option of, do you want to play the the predictable game or do you want to play the slot machine like game? They all choose a slot machine like game. But what happens is that at some point he takes these pigeons out of their small cages where they kind of live alone and he puts them into this really massive cage that is designed to be just like their wild environment. So it's got, you know, plants, it's got trees, it's got places they can roost and it's got other pigeons that they can hang out with. And then he gives them the choice to play the games again. And what he finds is that pretty much all the pigeons stop playing the gambling game. They start making better decisions. And so from there, he basically told me, you know, I don't think that we as humans are all that different from animals. Like his whole research is that the the same fundamental architecture of the brain still sort of holds. And there's this model in psychology called the optimal stimulation model. And it basically says that animals and humans, they have a certain level of stimulation that they prefer that helps them do well. And when we get below that, we go searching for stimulation. And so what he found is that when you put an animal in its more wild environment, it gets enough stimulation and doesn't have to go find stimulation from a slot machine. And his point was that, you know, we humans today, we are living very different than we did in the past. You know, we don't have to struggle for resources. We don't have to go, you know, hunt and forage food. We spend a lot less time outside. Our social worlds have changed where we are less reliant on other people for survival. And, We don't have to be in the moment anymore, right? Like life used to be very consequential and dangerous. And that's a lot of stimulation all the time. And now that we're in kind of a very safe world, it's great. Don't get me wrong. This is part of progress, but we get a lot less stimulation from our environments. And so we become more likely to go search for it in the form of say gambling or say overpurchasing or even doing drugs or eating more than we need. Just something that makes us feel, feel something. Really, is his
0: theory? Yeah, well, there's that that one famous study where they they put people in a room and they connect them to like a zapper, and they say, "Well, look, you can uh, just sit here, you know, quietly for half an hour, or you can zap yourself with an electric current." And most people zap themselves with the electric current because they're just looking for some sort of stimulation, and particularly men were the ones more likely to zap themselves than be bored out of their minds.
1: Yeah, exactly. So as part of this book, I traveled to uh, Iraq and I talked to a lot of people that had been in war zones, and it's so fascinating to talk to them because they all go, you know, when I was there, it was very intense, it was dangerous, but I also look back on that time in my life very fondly because I had to be a hundred percent in the moment, I had to have my head on a swivel, I had this group of people that. I was working with that all had this same common mission and you know everything i did was consequential and then i came back home and i didn't get that anymore and i absolutely i missed that and so i do think that that is one of the key reasons we see ptsd in in vets it's quite counterintuitive but i think that the research bears that out
0: well, so it seems like we're really we have a problem of overstimulation in our modern lives. We have the internet, we've got all this stuff trying to grab our attention. So how are we understimulated?
1: Well, it's a different type of stimulation, right? I think we're understimulated in the way that humans for two and a half million years evolved to be stimulated. We we never had digital media in our life until about a hundred years ago. And then you see radio creep in and people start listening to it for three hours a day, and then TV really rises in the fifties. And TV went from people watching zero hours in 1950 to the average person, I think, watching four hours by 1960 a day. So you kind of had this creep of media that is stimulating. But at the same time, we've lost this other form of stimulation, which requires hard work and effort in in a sort of natural environment like humans had to do for all of time. And so I think we've just traded it and... Again, that goes back to progress, right? It's probably, I would say for the vast majority of people, like we don't want to be out hunting and gathering. We don't want to be braving the elements every single day. But I do think that a result of that is that we've had to look for other forms of stimulation and those other forms of stimulation haven't always necessarily netted a positive in our life when you think about a lot of the behaviors that you see people do today.
0: Yeah, I think a lot of the stimulation we have, it's underwhelming. Right. It doesn't, it doesn't really scratch the itch. And so you, you, as a result, you have to get more of it to even feel like you're doing something. I think that's what I, that's what I've noticed in my own life.
1: Yeah. What's more exciting climbing up a dangerous mountain or watching someone climb up a dangerous mountain on TikTok? Like obviously it's the climbing up a dangerous mountain, right? That's the thing that you go home and you go, Oh my God, that trip changed my life. You remember that forever and it changes your behavior from then on. It changes your sense of self. It changes your Confidence, your competence. Not so on TikTok. <laughs> you forget about it in about two seconds when you flip to the next video, which is, you know, a cat that learned how to play the drums or whatever, whatever it is.
0: Well, you see this idea of what healthy environmental stimulation looks like. I've read reports about kids going to summer camp and the camp bans digital devices, smartphones, iPads, whatever. And what they find is that, you know, after the first few days, like the kids are kind of grumpy. It's like, oh, I want my, I want my smartphone. But after a while, they just, they're happy. Like they don't even think about their smartphone and they report like the reason why is because I've got these other kids that are around me. We're out doing hard things with our bodies. And so they don't even have the desire to look at their phone by the end of camp.
1: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I think that what becomes so hard for everyone is that phones are now your everything device. You know, it's very hard to To sort of create silos around these behaviors because, you know, the work device, which is your phone, is also your entertainment device, is also the device that you use to keep in touch with your kids or or family. It's this device that gets used for so many things. And I think what tends to happen is that you go to check email and then you're like, I'm on here. I'll, uh, you know, I'll check this random social media platform. And you get, and then you look up and 15 minutes have gone by because these things are designed to be so hyper stimulating. Or you're like, you know what? check the news. You start looking at the news and then you find yourself, you know, in a, in a fit of anger and anxiety because of some crazy political thing coming out of Washington. And, and I think that that makes it hard to really get away from it when everything is coming through one device or everything is available on a computer at all times. And yeah, so I do think that, you know, the lesson, especially for kids is that if you have kids, it's, uh, having kids take time away from their phones or from media stimulation and go out into the real world with other kids it doesn't have to be a summer camp it could even be hey you got to go volunteer at the homeless shelter or we're putting you in this you know program for xyz with other kids i do think that that is very valuable because you are seeing you know rates of anxiety and really spike you're seeing focus go down you're seeing critical thinking go down and i think it does track back to how much time people right. spend on digital media today.
0: Yeah, play sports, get physically active, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So we talk about addiction is the extreme form of the scarcity loop, scarcity brain. But you highlight some really interesting research that goes against how we typically think of addiction. And I think when we typically think of addiction, we think, well, once you get addicted to something, you're addicted for life. But you highlight research that actually that's not the case. What's going on there?
1: Yeah, the reason that we think that is Because most of the research that leads to that conclusion is conducted by neuroscientists in labs where they're looking at a lot of the most addicted people, like the absolute extreme cases. But when you look at the data on sort of, I guess I would say, everyday people, most people are able to quit a problematic drug or alcohol use or even smoking on their own. So for example, there was this one big survey looked at 20,000 people and it found that 75% of them who reported struggling with drugs before they had turned 24, they no longer used any substances by age 37. So 75%. That's a pretty significant number. And there was another survey that found over 10 years, 86% of people who struggle with addiction ended up getting clean The point I want to make in the book with this is on this topic is that I do think that addiction definitely falls into a scarcity loop. And as you mentioned before, I mean, I feel relatively qualified (laughs) talking about this because I'm a person who is now sober. And I can tell you that, um, you know, a substance, whatever it be, alcohol, drugs, it gives you an opportunity to improve your life or just escape from your problems, at least in the short term, only in the short term. Whether you're getting drugs or whether you're drinking and don't know what's going to happen, it's very unpredictable trying to get the drugs, trying to see what's going to happen after you have a bunch of drinks. And then you repeat the behavior, right? You get kind of sucked into a cycle of getting drugs again or waiting for the next drink. The U.S. has had different viewpoints on addiction throughout the years, but they tend to be two different viewpoints. The first is that addicts are bad people. It's a moral failing. Or now, which started in the 90s, is that addiction is a brain disease. And I traveled to Iraq to understand some of the new thinking around addiction. So a lot of new thinkers are coming out and basically saying, addiction, of course, is not a, a moral failing by any means. You're not a bad person if you're you know an addict. But it also doesn't seem to be a brain disease. And that's because if it's a brain disease, you can't really cure it, right? You can't respond to incentives if it's a brain disease like Alzheimer's is a brain disease. And if I tell a person with Alzheimer's, like, Hey, if I put you in this, uh, you know, this church basement with a bunch of other people with Alzheimer's and you talk about Alzheimer's, you'll probably be okay. Like that would never happen. But that does seem to work with addiction, where if you put people in a group of other people who are trying to get over addiction and they talk about it and they get a new network, they make bigger changes in their life. They can come out of it. So I think addiction is more of a symptom than anything else. Drugs effectively get used to deal with life's problems, right? It's, uh, it could be just d- general discomfort with life, or people might have started using because they have some past trauma, or whatever it might be. And Iraq is a good case study of this, because you had basically no people using drugs in the country, and then the U.S. invaded, and this caused obviously a lot of trauma in people's lives, right? They had to live through a war. And then what ended up, what ended up happening is that Syria fell and effectively became a narco state, And they started flooding the Middle East with this pill called Captagon. So there's now billions of these Captagon pills floating around the Middle East, and they're akin to methamphetamine, basically. And so you have these two things. You have this population who has a lot of problems, a lot of traumas, and then you have this sudden influx of a substance that will immediately solve your problems if you take it, right? It'll comfort you from the hardships of life. And so you see so you start to see addiction really spike in Iraq. And I think that that has been the American story too. I mean, there's a reason that you saw the opioid epidemic hit the Midwest hardest in these towns that used to say have still mills or used to have factories. And then they moved out of town and like all hope was lost. It's like, okay, well, life is really hard. And then you have an influx of opioids and it's like, well, this will fix my problems in the short term. And the problem could be that you don't have a job. You could be really bored. You could have some past trauma and you see it all um, spike. And there's also great examples from the past of people who are addicted, changing their environment in such a way that it removes their problems and they tend to get clean. So soldiers in Vietnam are a great example where during the peak of the Vietnam war, you had something like 25% of us soldiers. The government thought were addicted to heroin because there's this huge heroin epidemic among us soldiers in Vietnam. And so Nixon came in and goes, I don't want all these addicts coming back to the us. If you are a soldier in Vietnam and you want to come back home, you have to pass a urine test. And so if the idea that an addict can never get clean, is true, we would have left 25% of soldiers in Vietnam, right? That didn't actually happen. Nearly every single soldier produced a clean urine test. And when they got home, 95% of them remained clean. And the 5% that didn't remain clean tended to be soldiers who had used drugs before the war. So really what the difference was is that they were in this environment where there was this hell of war and drugs allowed them to cope with that. Like it allowed them to sort of forget that problem while they were using But once they were out of that hell, the problem was solved and they didn't need to use drugs anymore. And so I think that that's kind of a larger metaphor for the underlying reasons why people tend to use 2XS because people have problems and drugs are a pretty quick and easy way to solve your problems, at least in the short term. But the issue is that they cause long-term problems.
0: We're going to take a quick break for your word from our sponsors. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with a thoroughly modern design. The exterior has been reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing, and the interior is built with robust materials and integrity. The Defender capability is legendary, whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions. Durability has been tested to the extreme. Cargo capacity means more room for your gear. And there's been powerful innovations like the intuitive driver display and award-winning infotainment system that keeps you connected. Innovative camera technologies deliver unobstructed views and effortless maneuvering, and the Defender is ready for a wide range of adventures. The Defender family features two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, and the Defender 130, which seats up to eight. Push what's possible with a vehicle made to go further, the Defender 110. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. That's LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Masterclass.com slash AOM. Check out the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. And now back to the show. So like what goes on in, in with the scarcity loop with these people who, you know, you talked about 75% of people who report struggling with drugs before age 24 no longer use. So they were able to put it behind. So like what mm-hmm. happened? Like what, what do you think is going on with the scarcity loop in those individuals that allowed them to Put the drug or the addiction behind them, or like even like what happened with you, right? There's something happened that you're able to to get out of that scarcity loop.
1: Yeah, so I'll answer this two ways. I'll, I'll kind of talk generalities, and then I'll talk about what happened with me. So you do tend to see that addiction rates peak when people are younger, and this is because from about puberty to age 25, the human brain undergoes like an insane renovation, and all these different things become important to people. One of them is that uh, teens really like to take risks. They're more drawn to risky behavior. Another one is that this is when we learn how to cope with life, basically. We're figuring out how do we deal with our problems? How do we cope? And if people use drugs when they are younger, or alcohol or whatever it might be, the risk of becoming addicted greatly increases. And that's because they've learned that this substance can help them solve a problem in the short term. So for example, if you started drinking at under age 15, your risk of becoming an alcoholic is about a coin flip. It's 50%. But if someone starts drinking when they're 21 or after, their risk is, I think, 6%, which is very minimal, right? And that's because these changes in the brain Things are happening then. So if you introduce a substance, then it makes you more likely to want to use that substance to excess later on in your life. And so over time, what happens is that people can effectively grow out of it. It's like they, they might use when they're in their 20s and they're going, you know, this helps me solve my problems. But then as they age and they start to realize like, oh, this is actually creating more problems in the long haul than it's solving, they begin to try to work to get out of that cycle. And it is hard. I'm not saying that it's easy at any point. It is hard, but that's what you tend to see. For example, people might go, well, I want to get married to this person and they're not going to marry someone who's you know, drinking this much or I want to have kids. I can't be drinking as much as I drink when I have kids. So the behavior changes because they have something more important to care for than their alcohol or drug use. Now with me, I've, you know I've thought about this a lot doing this book and I will say that when my editor assigned me this book, and I was like, yeah, you need a chapter on addiction. I went in thinking that addiction was a disease. So, okay, we're going to like learn about this. It was a brain disease, basically. And I don't know if I think that anymore. If people think that, I'm totally fine with that. Really, I, d- I just want people to, if they have a problem, to have resources to change. But I do think for me, it was very much that I had this job that was relatively unsatisfying. I was in the office from, you know, 8 a.m. to 6 p.m., five days a week, and i didn't have a lot of money i was living in a town i didn't really want to live in i didn't see my friends all that much i just wasn't doing that interesting of things and what was interesting is if i would drink all of a sudden things became unpredictable right it became this sort of every night could offer a new opportunity that i knew was going to be far more exciting and interesting than if i had sat home and watched you know netflix or whatever it is you know if i if i go to a bar and i start drinking it's like, who the hell knows what's going to happen? I might close this place down and be belting out Garth Brooks at 3am with some people that I just met. And that would be a blast. Or I might, you know, connect with some person I, I otherwise wouldn't have, or I could sit down at my desk and write something that I otherwise wouldn't have sober. So it really, for me was allowed me to sort of live out on the edge and have more intense experiences than I otherwise wouldn't have had I been sober. So when I realized that, I needed to get sober. It was very, I mean, it's the hardest thing I've ever done by far, but a big part of me becoming sober was that I had to find where to get stimulation and excitement in my life from other places because I've always been drawn to extreme experiences. But if your extreme experiences come from drinking, you're going to find yourself with some problems. And I did. So I had to find new ways to sort of deal with that. Started spending a lot more time doing things like, you know, backcountry hunting or traveling. I got more into working out, started picking up more sort of extreme exercise. I just found other ways to deal with that and to sort of scratch that itch to go peek over the edges in a way that didn't lead to these insane long-term problems that made me uh, not like myself and made other people not really like me that much anymore.
0: Okay, so it sounds like if you have an addiction to a substance, the key is to find, like, w- try to figure out like what what's the problem in my life that this addiction is trying to solve, and then solve it in another way with something else. Yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah. And I think you got to try a lot of different things. I mean, what works for one person isn't going to work for another. You know, there's this researcher. I talked to two researchers around this who are really smart. One's name is Sally Sattel and the other is Maya Salovitz. And Maya said, you know, you really see that. People do find all different ways to cope. Some people go to sort of programs, you know, like a 12 step program, and that really works for them because it gets them this new group of people and it gives them a sort of higher purpose. They're doing service. Some people go to the those sorts of programs and it doesn't work for them. But they might find a group that they rock climb with and they get really into rock climbing. And all of a sudden they're like, Oh, I have this thing in my life that's providing me with something bigger. Or they get married, or they have kids, or they get a new job, or they decide they're going to go get educated. It's so the guy that I um, I talked to the head psychiatrist in Iraq, and that was his big message: is that you know when people come in here and talk to me, I very much tell them like we need to figure out a way to deal with your past traumas, if that's it, and we need to find a way for you to improve your life. I want you to go to school. I want you to learn how to read. I want you to try all these different things, and we're going to see what takes. But it ultimately. It's going to take a little bit of effort, but on the other side of that is growth.
0: So one of my favorite chapters is where you talk to a philosopher out of the University of Utah about how our tendency in the modern world to quantify all aspects of our lives might be contributing to our scarcity brain and scarcity loop. So what's going on there with quantification, creating new scarcity loops for us?
1: Yeah, I I love this guy. His name is... uh, T. Nguyen, which is spelled T-H-I space N-G-U-Y-E-N, and he's up at the University of Utah, and he studies games and gamification and how quantification, when we put game-like features into everyday activities, how that ultimately changes our behaviors in ways that may not be good. Now, to understand this, I will uh, give you something of a damning admission, and that's that uh, I got this Instagram habit, right? So <laughs> I download Instagram initially years ago because it's like you download it and like, oh, okay, great. I can you know, share photos of my life with my friends and my family and that's it. So it's like, here's a photo of me at a concert with my wife. Here's a bunch of photos of my dog, that sort of stuff. But then I began to realize that, oh, I'm getting these followers who aren't my friends and family and certain types of photos are getting a higher number of likes and comments and shares and that sort of stuff. So an example of this is that when I would post photos of my runs in the desert, I live on the edge of Las Vegas and I've got, I'm, I mean, I'm very blessed to have a backyard that looks like something of a, from an old Western movie. It's amazing. And I would uh, run out there and you know, post photos and those would start to get the most likes and comments and shares and stuff. And so once that happens, all of a sudden my behavior changes. I start posting more photos of that to accumulate more of those metrics. And then the worst part is that the whole reason that I was running out in the desert is that it was my time to escape. It was my time to zone out. It was my time to, it was like a moving meditation, right? But then once that sort of gamified Instagram system gets in my head, now when I'm out there running, I'm looking for freaking, what would look good in an Instagram photo. And this totally changes what my run is like. It makes it something totally different. And I don't like it. Right. Now, this uh, philosopher, I came across one of his papers, and it turns out that he had had the exact same thing happen to him, but it happened to him with uh, Twitter. So, you know, he joined Twitter just to sort of communicate with people like we all do at first. And then he had a few tweets go viral. And what ended up happening after that is that so, this guy's a philosopher. His job is to think really deep thoughts, like to go down the rabbit hole of thoughts and ideas. And he found that after he had this tweet go viral, what ends up happening is he starts, he'll have a thought and instead of following it down that rabbit hole that it needs to go down for him to be a good philosopher, he starts thinking, how could I turn this into a a short tweet that would maybe go viral? It changes his entire experience of of thought, right? (laughs) And so the long story short of this is that when you gamify a system with numbers and points, and shares, and retweets, or whatever it might be, could be grades. The goal shifts to scoring points. Now, if you are playing a real actual game, like baseball, like basketball, like Monopoly, that's totally fine. Because games, as they are normally constructed, are supposed to be an escape from normal life. They're not part of normal life. They're this fun diversion we do to sort of, you know, have some entertainment. But when you start to put a gamified system on really complicated behaviors that are part of everyday life, it changes the goals in ways that can take us away from the original meaning. So take Twitter, right? It's supposed to be this platform for people to have discussions. And it's like, well, what's the goal of a discussion? There's a lot of them right? It could be to commiserate, to share information, to show empathy, to fact check things to do. I mean, there's so many different goals of a conversation, but once you put that scoring on Twitter, people just start to tweet to score points. They're like, Oh, I gotta, I gotta get retweets. I gotta get likes. And that changes how you use the machine. So this is why you tend to see Twitter is like the ultimate place for people to be outraged and say crazy things, because that is what the system of scoring incentivizes. It's no longer a platform for discussion. It's a place for people to score likes by trying to, you know, dunk on people publicly. And you can apply that same logic to really any gamified system. another example is great. So the point of going to college, I'm a professor, the point of going to college, what is it? There's like a lot of them, right? It's, you want to learn, you want to think critically. You want to be able to unpack other people's arguments, unpack your own arguments. You want to be able to question yourself. You also want to learn how to be social. You need to learn how to get your stuff together so you can turn things in on time. You have to balance work and other stuff. You have to learn how to not be a jerk at parties. There's a million different things that you learn at college. But once you start to slap grades <laughs> onto things, which is the simplified gamified thing with like the, the 4.0 scale, all my students really obsess about is their grade. Not whether they learn the material, not whether they've been able to think critically and prepare for this you know, future out in the employment world. They all obsess about their grades. And I have personally found as a professor that the best students, they don't get the A's. The best students are free thinking. They might be working other jobs, they're questioning things, they're going to do things a little differently to sort of test the edges and really think. They tend to get, you know, a B plus or A minus, but it's the A students that get recruited by companies. And the A students tend to just simply be more robotic. It's like, okay, just, you know, fill out the sheet, make it perfect, get the A, move on with your life, whether or not I really know the material or not.
0: Well, what you highlight in the book is that with all these things that we want to quantify or gamify, you know, whether it's Instagram, grades you all see this with with fitness apps and trackers like the whoop you know, your sleep score what you're trying to do with these things is you're trying to put a number on something that's otherwise ambiguous like you don't like you don't know for sure what your social status is you know where you are in the pecking order or how smart you are or, or how healthy you are but what these numbers do is that they they give you it gives you something concrete but they may not they might not be accurate right like it doesn't actually reflect reality but you still let the numbers affect you know everything like your mood uh, your self-perception your motivations and your actions
1: yeah it goes back to the humans love certainty this is why real games work they give us this escape you know life is very complicated and complex it's everything's ambiguous but in a real game what makes it fun is that you take on these obstacles And at the end of it, you know exactly whether or not you did the right or wrong thing. If you are playing basketball with some friends, you know whether you won. You know whether you lost. With most of life's big decisions, like education or what to do at work or who to marry or what kind of food you should eat to you know avoid disease, I mean all these big decisions they're ambiguous. You never get a clear yes or no answer. But with gamified systems, they allege to give you a clear answer on whether you did the right or wrong thing. (laughs) The problem is. Of course they don't. It's like, you know, with whoop, it's, it all goes into this black box algorithm. There's a ton of assumptions. It's also based on data about ideas like HRV and what respiratory rate means and what heart rate really means. And these are all things that, you know, the science isn't settled on these things by any means. And it's all based on these very potentially flawed human judgments. And so like, what does it really mean? Right? It doesn't. But if you can just see like, oh my God, my whoop this morning, said I got a 94, like I got to work out today, right? Or conversely, if it's, you know, in the red and you're not going to work out because of that, that seems like a a questionable judgment.
0: Right. So yeah, what the quantification does, it creates scarcity loops that probably don't need to be created.
1: Yeah, exactly. It's basically preying on our need for certainty, putting us into this loop where we're going to get these random, unpredictable rewards in the form of points. Like, you know, if you have a sleep tracker, when you wake up in the morning, you're probably checking that thing first thing. How'd I do? <laughs> right. But it's probably highly flawed. And whether or not you slept well, it's like, well, you're still going to do the same things you're going to do. Right. So I think that what tends to happen is that we just gravitate to scoring points rather than experiencing or doing the activity for many of its original goals. You know, the point of of whoop is to help you, I guess, increase your fitness. But it's like, well, why do you want to increase your fitness? It's not to score points on your whoop. It's probably to have these experiences in life that are inherently important about being a human that you're going to need to ha- be fit for. Could be being around for when your grandkids are around so you can crawl on the ground. It could be like, you know what, I get a ton of rewards from going out on these seven-day backpacking excursions and I want to be fit from that. And I think that sometimes we forget that. We don't define what are all these reasons I'm doing this everyday behavior in the first place? And we tend to just default to obsessing about whether we got the right or wrong number of points.
0: Right. And what that point system can do, it can end up, uh, it's it's a nocebo. So it's the opposite of a placebo. You know, placebo is like, if you think something's going to work, it's going to work. A nocebo is the opposite of that. Like, well, if you get negative feedback, it makes you think that you can't do the thing, right? So it demotivates you. So like with the whoop, you know, if you get the low score and it's like, well, yeah, you're not ready to work out. When you think, well, yeah, I can't work out. And so you don't. I mean, it's like, actually, you probably could have worked out and had a great workout if you just ignored your whoop score. Or, you know, you as a writer, I'm sure you struggle with it. You mentioned this with Instagram. Like you put something out there on Instagram post or maybe a newsletter, and it doesn't get that many opens or engagement. And you think, oh, man, I suck. Why am I doing what I'm doing? You start questioning your career because You you experience that status defeat that the, the numbers gives you. When, if you just had ignored that or just didn't even have those numbers like you wouldn't have been affected so like how do you avoid those scarcity loops especially when it comes to social status in your own life
1: yeah so the three parts of the loop are opportunity unpredictable rewards and quick repeatability so to me what gamification does is it really changes the opportunity it's changing the opportunity of any behavior from all these kind of deeper more meaningful things down to scoring these random points that like some coder in Palo Alto came up with, you know? So I think for me, it's like, I have to remind myself, what is the opportunity of this thing that I'm doing? What am I really doing this for? The answer is never to score points. The answer is usually to uh, improve the life of others. If we're talking about content that I put out as a journalist and a writer, and that could be on social too. So I've started to shift my Instagram to being like, the goal of this is to inform people, give them information that can hopefully help their lives and help others. So if I'm using it in a way that is divorced from that, then I'm not using it for the goal that I want it to. And the metrics, they can be useful. They cannot not be useful too. I could have a post bomb, but then I get a message from someone who's like, hey, I saw that post. I started practicing that. Dude, that changed my life. I, I lost 15 pounds. I went to the doctor and he was like, hey, your triglyceride levels are looking great. It's like, that is what we're after. And that is what points can never capture.
0: Right. So the rest of the book, you talk about different ways you can engage in scarcity loops in non-scarcity loop ways. So like for diet, uh, for example, you highlight if you want a non-scarcity loop diet, it's going to look pretty boring. Like You're just going to eat kind of the same sort of foods. They don't taste terrible. They're palatable, but they're not like hyper palatable like the food you get at a, a convenience store. And if you just eat the same thing every day, that's food that's taste okay. You're going to be okay probably. That'll help you avoid that that uh, scarcity loop diet.
1: Yeah, I agree. So what I found to be really interesting is, you know, just like there's these casino laboratories researching the scarcity loop to get you to gamble more, turns out this is also happening in the food industry. There's labs across the country figuring out, how do we get people to eat more faster? I mentioned before that junk food executive who basically said the three V's of being able to have a a junk food take off is value, variety, and velocity. (laughs) So with any scarcity loop behavior, if you can take away any one of the three parts, you can start to reduce the behavior around it. And so in the case of junk food, it really sells well because there is such a wide variety, right? It's like, if you go to the grocery store right now, there's like 75 different kinds of Doritos (laughs) and that makes us more likely to overeat when we have all these different amazing tasting foods. So if you can eat mostly the same stuff every day that isn't super hyper palatable, but is still, you know, it's good, but it's like not every meal you have has to be this explosion of, of flavor that can be a good thing. And also changing the velocity, or the quick repeatability. So people tend to eat ultra processed foods, significantly faster than they do foods that are less processed, like lean meats and vegetables and whole grains. Like you just can't eat those foods that fast. And this seems to allow you to better figure out when you are full and in turn, not overeat. And that's shown in studies where they'll give people a, you know, Everything about the food is the same uh, in terms of macronutrients and salt and all those things. But in one group, the food will be hyper-processed, ultra-processed. On the other, it'll be very minimally processed. And the people who are eating the ultra-processed food eat about 500 extra calories a day. They end up gaining weight. And that it's opposite in the group that eats the uh, less-processed stuff. And to really get to the bottom of this, what I, what I was a really interesting trip is I traveled into the Bolivian Amazon because there is a tribe there called the Chimane who have the healthiest hearts ever recorded by science. So this is important because you know the average American they worry if you look at the data they really worry about cancer. They really worry about things like mass shooting, shootings. It's not that those things aren't dangerous, but compared to heart disease, heart disease is what kills people. It kills like half of people. It's the number one cause of death by far, for all Americans, and yet we totally ignore it, and so I traveled down there, and what really stuck out to me is that they're basically eating, they have a wide variety of foods they're eating, but it all comes down to that they mostly just have one ingredient, and they're not super delicious, so there's not as much incentive to just eat and eat meat like we do when things are really delicious, and not to mention that foods that have just one ingredient, like, Fruits, vegetables, lean meats, you know, rice, uh, potatoes, plantains, things like that. Those are so much more filling. And you just can't eat that much of them. Where, like, I could sit down right now and probably smash an entire thing of Doritos if I really put my mind to it. If I sat down with an equivalent bag of like carrots and broccoli, dude, I'd get like an eighth of the way through it and be like, oh my God, this right. is so much. I, there's no way I can do this.
0: And you also talk about. You explored your shopping binge you went on during the COVID lockdowns. <laughs> and I think it's a perfect example of the scarcity loop when it comes to st- stuff. You were understimulated. You couldn't go out anywhere. And then you had this scarcity loop. You had the opportunity. You're on Amazon. You had unpredictable rewards. You never knew what you're going to find on some website saying, hey, here's this product you need to buy to help you navigate the pandemic. And then you're able to do it fast. And you said the counter that, that scarcity loop when it comes to our stuff You had this neat heuristic. You need to start thinking of your stuff as gear. How can thinking of your stuff as gear help you overcome the scarce loop when it comes to buying crap?
1: Yeah. Well, I think that there's a handful of reasons why people buy. One is because the item is a piece of gear, meaning that it is helping us accomplish something, right? It serves this higher purpose of of allowing us to do something greater. There's also buying for status. So this is like when you buy, say, the really nice, the car that's nicer than your neighbors because you kind of want to one up another person. We see this all, all the time with, I mean, it's, it's what luxury brands really thrive on. You can also buy something to belong. So this could be something like a football jersey. uh, So you can, you know, be with your friends and like, you're all in your Cleveland Browns jerseys or whatever it is. And then there's also for boredom. Like, let's be honest. I think that during the pandemic, you saw such a spike in purchasing because to how you put it is that people were understimulated and it was like, well, you got to do something. And you know, we're creatures who evolved to add, who evolved to acquire items when we could. And so in that setting, we're like, okay, yeah, I'll just kind of do what I've always done and just buy some stuff. But I think so much of what we buy now is we don't need it. You know, the average home now has 10,000 items and the vast, I think the world as a whole spends a trillion or more dollars on stuff they don't need anymore it's like this insane amount of stuff that people have. And I found myself going down this rabbit hole. Yeah. During the pandemic, like I'm on first name, I was on a first name basis with my UPS guy. <laughs> I was like, what the hell is happening here? And I learned about the scarcity loop and that of course was it, right? I was using stuff. I was getting caught in this like search for random items. And when I'd find it, it was like, Oh, exciting jackpot. And then it would arrive. And then I'd repeat the cycle again. So seeing your items and purchases through the lens of gear rather than stuff, I think is a useful heuristic for saying, okay, what is this allowing me to accomplish? Because a piece of gear is ultimately a tool to accomplish something bigger. So framing, reframing my purchases through that has been pretty useful for me. To not just buy as much stuff that I don't need, which has saved a lot of money.
0: Yeah, and you also talk about minimalism can turn into a scarcity loop where you're just constantly purging stuff. So you buy the stuff which feels good, but then also it feels really good to purge. I'm guilty of this. I love purging stuff, and uh, I just I just throw away stuff that probably shouldn't be thrown away. Like I get I get carried away, and I end up. You know, my kids are like, Dad, what happened to my homework? And I'm like, Oh, well, it was on the floor. <laughs> So I guess it wasn't important. I threw it away. Sorry. So we have to go dig through the trash, but that's a scarcity loop. Like the whole minimalism thing can turn into a scarcity loop too.
1: Yeah. I talked to a, uh, psychologist who studies how humans relate to their possessions and you know, her first point that was like, look, in the grand scheme of things, we're all hoarders today in the grand scheme of time and space. Like we all have way more things than anyone has ever had in the past. And that applies to all socioeconomic groups, For the first time ever, even people who are in sort of lower socioeconomic status can compulsively buy. You know, that's never been possible. But as it relates to minimalism, she had this amazing um, point that was, you know, when I study how people relate to possessions, there's essentially kind of two groups. There's people who are accumulators. So these are people who kind of buy and buy and buy. They don't like to get rid of stuff, they tend to have a lot of stuff. But then there's this other group which are more minimalist people. And what happens with them is they get really into organizing things, purging things, making sure things are just so. Now the driving force between both of these, she thinks, is that it gives people a sense of control. So if you're buying a lot of stuff, you're like, okay, I can solve any problem that comes my way. I'm using this to sort of deal with stress. But with minimalism, it's often the same thing. It's like people are stressed and having too much makes them even more stressed. And so they They purge it. But what happens with everyone is that people kind of slowly acquire over time. And then we go, oh, my God, I have too much. And so then we're like, you know, we go on the minimalist blog and we're like, I need to be a minimalist. Then we purge all our stuff. And then we kind of slowly start to reaccumulate it. So her point was that you need to get into the underlying why you either want to accumulate more or purge more stuff in the first place. Because that's how you can eventually end that cycle of... (laughs) Buying, purging, buying, purging, buying, purging, buying, purging.
0: Yeah. So one thing you did for this book is you went to a monastery in New Mexico to learn about taming the scarcity brain. What did you learn at this monastery?
1: Yeah, these guys at the monastery were so interesting because, you know, there's so much information out about how to be more happy. And a lot of it is backed by some research or another. There's always new research coming out and um we've got this giant wellness industry in the united states but what you've tend to see is that people are generally less happy than they ever have been in the united states and it's not just the us i mean i think we're maybe especially worse off compared to comparable countries but overall i think the world is generally becoming hap- unhappier when you look at the data and these monks in this monastery that i went to are so interesting because they they're not doing all these things that I think people think classically will make them happy. They don't own anything. They have a really hard lifestyle. And the fact that they get up at 3 a.m. to pray and they pray seven times a day. They do four hours of uh, hard labor every single day. Their meals, they don't eat that much. They're asked to like, you know, don't overdo it with food. They're also silent for most of the day. So they're not exceedingly social. Like they're around people, but it's not like they're, you know, yucking it up all day. And yet, despite all that, despite the hardship and the sort of austerity of their life, when researchers do studies on them and ask them about their subjective well-being, which is kind of the science way of saying happiness, they always score far higher than the general public. And so that's, that shouldn't make sense, right? It's like you look at that life on paper, you're like, oh man, that sounds like a prison sentence. But I think the takeaway with them is that they're not worried about being happy. They realize that, A lot of the things that we traditionally think are going to make us happy, like the next possession, like getting the bigger house, like having the nice meal out, like all these different sort of accumulations, they call them, they call it worldliness. It ultimately doesn't lead to lasting happiness. And really, they're not even focused on happiness at all. They really are dedicated to giving themselves over to something larger than themselves, to helping others, to working towards a sort of common goal of getting close to, again, something bigger than themselves and just chasing that. And as they've done that, sort of doing the next right thing, they've found themselves happy. And I think that that's a good lesson for all of us. The lesson I think for the average person is that sort of chasing things you think are going to make you happy that maybe you read is like, oh, this is the key to happiness. That's probably going to backfire in the long run. (laughs) Instead, it's like Kind of do the next right thing that helps another person, that gets you out of yourself. It may not always be easy, but ultimately, that seems to be what is most rewarding for humans.
0: Right. I think the monks would say, you know, like St. Augustine talked about this. He said that famous prayer, like, our hearts are restless, Lord, until they rest in you. Like, I think like these monks would say, well, you know, all these desires for, I don't know, social status, for food, for sex, for stuff. He says, basically, those are like, I think they would say, like, we, we, we all desire the good, like capital G good. Yeah. Getting Instagram likes, nicotine, alcohol. Those are our attempts at trying to get the good, but like, it's not going to give you the good. And you see this in other faith traditions like Buddhism. That's all Buddhism is about is that desire is what leads to unhappiness. And you got to somehow figure out how to, you get to see beyond the illusion that uh, worldly fulfillment of desires will bring you happiness and realize that's not going to be the case So you got to look for something bigger. And I, yeah, I mean, that's like this stuff of overcoming the scarcity brain. Humans have been trying to figure this out for millennia.
1: Oh, totally. And I think that what's different today is that we have such an abundance of these things that we're naturally drawn to, you know, sort of those uh, worldly things as the monks would put it. And we also have live in a world where we've got laboratories figuring out how to push us into more of those things, whether it's a food laboratory, whether it's the casino laboratory, whether it's a laboratory in Palo Alto, watching every swipe you do and how long you look at every photo so they can give you more of what you want. I think that's the real challenge of today. It's much a much harder world to navigate. Now the upside of it is that it's a really promising world in the sense that like, you know, people don't die of infections anymore you're not going to starve. There's all these things that, you know, used to be really hard about everyday life that we don't have to deal with anymore. But within that promise, there is a lot of peril and figuring out how to navigate that I think is challenging, but that is ultimately what it means to live a good life is trying to improve yourself as a human and realizing that it's not always going to be easy and that the journey is what's important out arriving at this ultimate destination.
0: Well, Michael, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about the book and your work?
1: Yeah, the book is called Scarcity Brain, and uh, my website is Easter Michael, and then I also send out a three-times weekly newsletter called 2%, and that's at TWOPCT.com.
0: Fantastic. Well, Michael Easter, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, thank you. My guest today was Michael Easter. He's the author of the book Scarcity Brain. It's available on Amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find more information about his work at his website, Eastermichael.com. Also, check out our show notes at aom.is slash scarcitybrain, where you find links to resources where we delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Make sure to check out our website at artofmanlings.com where you find our podcast archives, as well as thousands of articles that we've written over the years about pretty much anything you can think of. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate it if you take one minute to get us reviewing on a podcast or Spotify. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think we get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay. Remind you time to listen to the A1 Podcast but put what you've heard into action.